Welcome. You're listening to Sanseet, where you'll find everything to do with spirituality, life lessons, holistic living, and medicine to become your true self. We all have stories, journeys, experiences, and love. Here's your host, Aaron O'Dowd. Today's episode of Sanseet is brought to you by Langevin and Axison Marketing. Langevin and Axison Marketing specializes in social media promotion and public relations. Langevin and Axison Marketing works with campaigns that offers products, books, and services to inspire and improve their lives. They focus on small spiritual businesses, authors, and teachers. Their clients have high quality products and services that they are proud to promote. If you have a business that has the potential to grow, go to Langevin and Axison Marketing and receive 10% off the first month of service. Contact Langevin and Axison Marketing and refer to Sanseed Ship. Hello and welcome on today's episode of Sanseed. We have Ernie Bringus. He is a teacher, author, musician, philosopher. He's an author of... Um... That's okay. It's called Mexican Roots, American Soil, A Quest for the American Dream. Okay. Excellent. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's a lot of words in that title, but it's basically, yeah, Mexican Roots, American Soil. Okay. So, hello. Welcome to the show, Ernie. How are you doing? Pretty good. You're Mexican. Why did you come to America? Well, actually, I was born in America. It's my mother who was born in Mexico. She, when she was very little, my grandmother, my grandfather brought her and her siblings across the border in 1916. So that was about 100 years ago. And, uh, and then my mother married here in the United States. And then, uh, then I was born. I'm actually first-generational American, but uh, my mother really got here very early in her own life, so I could be considered second-generation, but technically I'm first-generation. How did music come about? My music? Oh, gee, well, that <laughs> we're taking quite a jump here. Let me see. Well, the music, uh, actually, I, I, when I was growing up, and I grew up in California, uh, I was very interested in music, and uh, I just happened to uh, uh, live near Hollywood. I think uh, I lived about 10 miles north of Hollywood in a, in a city called Inglewood. And uh, so I got up, I started thinking, hey, I want to become a recording artist, <laughs> like a lot of people do. And, uh, but I was lucky, and I teamed up with a high school buddy of mine, Phil Stewart, so Phil and I formed this little group, and we went to Hollywood, and we got lucky and uh, ran into some people that really helped us out. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Doris Day, but it was her company, and more specifically her son, Terry Melcher, who was just starting out at Columbia Records. Uh, he was looking for a group, and we just happened to stumble in at the right time, and he started recording us, and that was the beginning of our music adventure. When the flag went down, you could hear a burn. The stingray had me going into the turn. I hung a big ship, and I got into high. And when I flew by the stingray, I waved by. 
you guys call yourself the Ripcords? Well, <laughs> yeah, personally, I don't like the name, but uh, we we had a we had recorded a song and they were going to put it out on the Columbia label, and we still didn't have a name. So Terry, our producer, Terry Melcher, he um, he just came up with this name just out of desperation, and so we just stuck that on there, and <laughs> we ended up being called the Ripcords. During that time, you had a few singles. What was it like? Well, I'll tell you. It's a whole different world. Uh, <laughs> you know, when you get... Uh, because we we actually placed five hit singles on the uh, Hot 100, Billboard's Hot 100, and uh, we got to do a lot of uh, shows, and uh, we toured around, and it, it was just... Uh, it was really exciting. Now, I didn't tour as much as Phil did because Phil was, uh, he, well, let me put it this way. I was in school. While this was going on, I was going to the University of Long Beach, and then when I graduated, I went to a seminary and spent three years there. So I was going through the whole educational process while my music was being played on the radio, or I should say our music um, was being played on the radio, so I couldn't get away to uh, tour with the group. But Phil, he did. He went and he toured and with some other guys, and they uh, they toured with Dick Clark, uh, and uh, they had a great time. I was in school, so I couldn't do that. But I got to record, and that was fun. That was fun. Why did you guys break up after the music? Well, that's a long story, so I'll try to shorten it. Um, basically, when I got out of seminary, well, this is a matter of timing. Everybody had different uh, ideas about what to do. I wanted to go into ministry, so I couldn't devote my time to uh, recording. Uh, Phil, he wanted to go into country and western music, which was his strong point. And uh, Terry, uh, our producer, and by the way, let me let me make a, a very important point here. Terry Melcher, our producer, and his friend Bruce. Johnston, who later became one of the Beach Boys, but Bruce Johnston and Terry Melcher were very important in our recording. In fact, uh, they did a, a they, they were phenomenal. The, their singing, their production, their producing, and so there were really four of us in the group. That was myself, Phil Stewart, Terry Melcher, and Bruce Johnston. So anyway, uh, there was so everybody had a different agenda. By the time I got out of seminary, I was ready to go into ministry. Phil was headed for a country and western. Bruce and Terry were recording other groups at Columbia, so they had their hands full. And then eventually, Bruce went on to become one of the Beach Boys. So anyway, we all just went our separate ways. We were running out of material, too. That's another thing. So there was a lot of reasons why we broke up. What made you go to ministry? I had been in the church all of my life. I just grew up, but I didn't know, you know, I, I, I didn't know I was going to become a minister until probably my junior year at the University of Long Beach. I made a decision at that point. Uh, I felt very strongly that I was being called into the ministry, and uh, so I, that's the direction I had I headed in, and, uh, and that's, that's why I went. Yep, it, uh, it, it was something. Nothing I ever thought I would do, but that's what happened. So I became a minister. How did it feel to become a minister? Well, it was an exciting journey. 
when I graduated from seminary, I went into youth ministry. This was great. I mean, I had a blast. I mean, working with young people, teenagers primarily, high schoolers, uh, and it, it was fantastic. Uh, I started working uh, with youth right from the get-go, and I spent the next, oh, I'd say, oh, seven or eight years. Well, actually, no, let me see, more about, yeah, about eight years in youth work before I uh, became a, what they call a senior pastor. I took a church of my own rather than just doing the, the youth work. But it was fun. It was great. And I enjoyed ministry after that, too. I've, I had several churches. Uh, it was really nice. It was very good. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. What did you learn being a minister? Well, I, <laughs> I learned that you don't end up the way you start out. Um, this is what I mean by that. Um, when I went to seminary, I was confronted with, with a lot of information that I, I was not aware of about the scholars had developed and had uh, found uh, a lot of information about the Jesus tradition and the transmission of the Bible, how all that occurred. And uh, it was just a lot of new information. And I had to restructure my whole uh, faith in terms of the information I was now receiving. And so I moved from thinking I knew everything there was to know about Christianity and discovered that uh, the more I knew, the less I knew. <laughs> and that's, that's true of any educational process. Uh, you, you always, the more you learn, the more you realize, the less you know. And uh, so it, it's been a transition for me. I've, I, I would call myself now a progressive Christian rather than a traditional Christian. Uh, but I'm comfortable with that. And uh, I'm you know, I'm moving along just like everybody else. How long did it take you to transfer from being a minister to doing the things you wanted to do? Well, I wanted to be a minister, and I wanted to do the ministry while I was doing it. But there came a point at which I decided I wanted to do something else because my theology or my belief system was so progressive that I felt uncomfortable uh, in, in the traditional church structure uh, I couldn't say what my congregations wanted me to say. I didn't feel comfortable with where they were in their theology and or their belief system. So eventually, I just kind of uh, felt like I wanted to go into something uh, else, and I eventually ended up uh, in the academic community. I started teaching at Glendale Community College under their auspices. I also taught at uh, Arizona State University uh, for a few years. But right now, I'm still teaching at Glendale Community College, and I'm enjoying it so much, as much as I did ministry, if not more. I mean, I love working with these young people, so it's it's really great. What are you teaching? What am I teaching? I'm teaching religious studies, uh, Aaron. I'm teaching um, Introduction to the New Testament, and I'm teaching world religions. And I don't know if you've ever had uh, world religions, Aaron, but uh, that, that, that is really, uh, it's fascinating. It's really, uh, it's really very interesting. What do you find the difference between Christianity and world religions? Well, every religion has its own strong points. For example, in Hinduism, they are extremely tolerant. Uh, in Hinduism, uh, they feel that everyone is on their own path and that eventually that path will take them to the top of the mountain, whatever that is, uh, spiritually speaking. 
for example, in Christianity, I guess the end goal is to be uh, united with God in heaven. Um, but, but whatever the end goal is, they will never proselytize. That means they will never try to convert you to their faith. They feel that everyone is on a path that will eventually get them to where they need to go. And other religions are very much uh, not like that. They, uh, Aaron, uh, you probably know, a lot of religions are, it's my way or the highway. Uh, I've got the only uh, sacred book. We've got the only Savior. This is the one true path. You can't do it any other way. <laughs> but not Hinduism. So that's their strength. Now, Christianity, for example, their strength would be the fact that you can't earn what we call salvation. There's nothing you can do. All these other religions, you've got to do things. You've got to follow certain rules and regulations and do this and do that. And Christianity isn't that way. You cannot earn salvation through Christianity. It's a gift. Uh, the only thing, of course, the only requirement is that you accept Jesus as your Savior. So that's a strong point. I mean, it's, it's a very uh, interesting religion. Um, Islam, on the other hand, and this will be my last example, but Islam, on the other hand, they have a very little mythology in their religion, and they feel they don't need a savior. They feel that all you need to do is follow the teachings of the Quran, and that will get you to where you need to be. So all these religions are very different, but they all have their strong points, and they all have their weaknesses. I see in your books that you integrate this into it. Um, explain a bit more about that to us. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, the other book, uh, the book where, you know, the book you're talking about now is on uh, Mexican Roots, American Soil, is an autobiographical sketch of my family and myself. Uh, the other book that I wrote uh, called Jesus Gate, that's a book that really goes into all of these, not so much about world religions, but about the New Testament and about Christianity. And it really is a book about what scholars have now discovered about Christianity through the last 300 years, and uh, so it's it's very interesting in terms of if people want to catch up with what scholarship is teaching, then they need to get a hold of Jesus Gate because that book has all modern scholarship in it. In the book, tell us a bit about what you discovered um, through Christianity. Well, <laughs> well, that could almost be another uh, another interview, <laughs> but. But there's a lot of things uh, in, uh, for example, the transmission of the of the Bible. Uh, the, now, how do we get our Bible? The Bible we have in front of us, for example, where did that come from? When you look into it historically, you discover that the transmission of the Bible, first of all, we don't have any of the original documents. We think that the first gospel that was written was the Gospel of Mark, not Matthew, even though Matthew appears first in the New Testament. But Mark uh, evidently was the first one written around 70 CE. These numbers are not certain. There's they're a little wiggle room there. But uh, anyway, we don't, we don't have any original copies of Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. The earliest copies we have uh, of these Gospels begin somewhere around 250 what you would call A.D., we call it C.E., but that's a technical term in the academic community, so I'll stay with what, uh, what is popular, A.D., after the death of Christ, or Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord. So anyway, so you have these Gospels, and they're all written in Greek. Uh, beginning around 250, we have a little bit of Mark, and it's not until around 350 A.D. that we have really any composition of what we now call the New Testament. 
But what's interesting about this is that between the years of, of let's say, 250 and uh, 1500, you know, all of these documents were handwritten. We didn't have a, pen, a printing press or anything like that. So they're all copy. They're copy after copy after copy after copy after copy. And we have these copies. And the scholars, they can look at the differences in all of these copies. And we see that as we go down the timeline, that these documents change. So that a Greek document of the New Testament that was copied in the 8th century is not the same as the one in the 4th century and not the same as the one in the 3rd century. Now, there's a lot of similarities, obviously, but there are some significant differences, additions and deletions in these books. So the, 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 so the problem for, for Christian scholars is how do, we, how do we put the Bible together when we have 5,800 Greek manuscripts and not one of them agrees with any other one, not only in any given chapter in these 5,800 uh, documents, do they agree. So anyway, we have what we call textual scholars, and they're the ones that go through all of those documents trying to figure out what would be the best approximation of the original documents, which we don't have. <laughs> so it, it it's really interesting, but it, it's kind of, it's a lot more complicated than, than people understand. And do you think the Bible contradicts each other after looking at all these documents? Oh, there, there's no doubt about that. Anybody who argues for the infallibility or for the inerrancy of Scripture doesn't know what they're talking about. They did, just have no information. Yeah, they, they just don't have the information uh, that scholarship has. We've had a hard time trying to get this information down to the laity because it's very disruptive. It, it, people get confused. They get hurt. They have specific religious viewpoints, that, uh, and they don't want to listen generally. So it's been, it's been difficult, but it, it, more and more this information is becoming available. There are a lot of books written now that anyone who's interested can look into the Certainly my book, Jesus Gate, covers a lot of this information. Uh, but there are others, and um, eventually, eventually, people will begin to understand that we've got to move on to better understanding of what we're dealing with here when we talk about the Bible and divine revelation. As a minister, what is your own opinion on the Bible and Jesus Christ? Wow, that is a loaded question. Okay, well, let's take the Bible first. Well, the Bible, obviously, is a book that contains many wonderful and great teachings. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but it also has some bias and some misconceptions. For example, in the Old Testament, it says that witches exist, and they ought to be killed. Well, <laughs> well, that led to the witchcraft craze in Europe and lasted for about 500 years, and we literally slaughtered... Uh, a million or so, uh, a million is about the low number. I've heard as high as nine million women burned at the stake because people thought that what was in the Bible was absolutely true, and therefore there had to be witches. And not only had there be witches, but they had. Uh, the Bible tells you what to do with them. You've got to kill them. So that was a disaster. In the New Testament, we have things uh, that Paul says about gays that they're an abomination to God and they need to be killed and all that. So well, you, if you follow and slavery, there's there's things in the in the New Testament that talk about. Uh, Slaves obey your masters and all that, which was a foundational argument for slavery in the United States. So if you take things out of the Bible, uh, and, and a lot of things in there are just wrong and uh, are very culturally biased for that particular time. So if you don't make that uh, 
discrimination or, or discernment, then you end up doing what a lot of people have done throughout history, and that's take the Bible literally, which is a big mistake. But aside from that, I've got to tell you, there's a lot of wonderful teachings, a lot of wonderful scripture, and, and uh, certainly the Bible uh, has uh, a much great value. There's no doubt about that. Now, when we come to Jesus, I am probably a progressive Christian in the sense that uh, I no longer see Jesus as, um, we can speak about Jesus as the Son of God, but at to progressive Christians, that could mean a lot of different things. Uh, do I take his divinity literally, or do I take it uh, more as a symbol of, of the Spirit of God being infused in this individual in a way that hadn't been previously or since? But there's a lot of what I call mythological doctrinal teaching of the Church that surrounds Jesus, which I think uh, when you look at the entire historical picture of the development of the Bible and Christianity, very difficult to support. So I, I look at Jesus as a person in history who certainly affected uh, Western history, not only Western, but the entire world. Uh, uh, and uh, certainly I can incorporate in my belief that Jesus was God-directed and Spirit-filled but there's a lot of ways to interpret that. You can see I'm kind of dancing around this, trying to, yeah. <laughs> trying to figure it out for myself. But uh, anyway, I think that's enough on that. Yeah, let's, let's talk about your other book, uh, Ernie, um, The Mexican Roots. Um, American Soil. American Soil. Right. Thanks. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's all right. No, no. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, that book, uh, I, it, it kind of, the purpose of the book primarily was to show that immigrants bring a lot to the table. I mean, it's to illustrate the American dream and, and to show how immigrants have, have positive and important contributions to make to the American culture. So I've been most fortunate. My family's been fortunate. We came over the border. Uh, uh, my grandmother, my grandfather, my mother, they were all very poor, my uncles. Uh, and yet, uh, because the American dream was possible, they, they went up the ladder. And uh, by the time I was born uh, here in the United States, they were well on their way. And, uh, and so I just uh, carried on and, and did the same thing. And uh, I've been very successful in life, very happy, and uh, I owe that to this country. But, you know, uh, immigrants, they have always made major contributions to this country. I mean, the, 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 the entire country is full of immigrants. Take the movie industry in Hollywood, for example. Uh, even in spite of the anti-Semitism of that time, it, it was the Jewish immigrants, really, that that established and created the entire movie industry in Hollywood. <laughs> the majority of these men, such as uh, old Samuel Golden, uh, David Selznick, uh, Daryl Zanuck, and, and the Russian-born Jew, uh, Louis B. Mayer, these guys, they put that industry together, and uh, movie, moviegoers have uh, you know, been enjoying that ever since. And then you think of Bernstein and music and Einstein and science. I mean, there's all kinds of contributions. And let's, uh, let's not forget uh, Maureen O'Hara, <laughs> an actress, one of my favorites. She's from uh, Ireland, I believe. Hey, by the way, are you in Ireland? Is this where you're calling from? Yeah, it is. Okay, uh, how far are you from Dublin? About two or three hours. Oh, okay. Well, that was where Maureen O'Hara was born, and, 
Anyway, she was a great movie star, beautiful lady, and uh, she was one of my favorites. But the point is that immigrants are always coming here. The problem is that many Americans feel when this is happening that the country is being taken over by foreigners, you know, by immigrants. <laughs> it is. It is. It always has been taken over by foreigners. That's who we are. We are and always have been a nation of immigrants. I like, I like the way President Obama said it. He said, we are and always will be a nation of immigrants. And, and that is so true. And it's, it's through the process, you know, of integration and assimilation that almost all of us as immigrants become Americanized, regardless of our backgrounds. And everyone here, really, almost everyone in America can trace their roots back uh, to that honorable distinction, immigrant. Yes. And, and we continue to be ceded by outsiders. That is, American soil is ceded by outsiders. The Japanese, the Chinese, the Irish, the Italians, the French, the British, the Spaniards, Arabs, Jews, Germans, Scandinavians, Africans, Russians, Romanians, Poles, Vietnamese, all kinds of people streaming here from almost every corner of the world. And that's what makes America great. When you hear Donald Trump talk about the border in Mexico and you see what's happening in Europe, what do you think? Uh, <laughs> Donald Trump. Well, there you go. Um, first of all, I can't know the man's heart, okay? I, I, I can only go by what I see, and he seems to be very anti-immigrant. That comes out a lot in his, his speeches. And it doesn't matter whether they're coming from Mexico or, or they're Syrians or Muslims or whatever. He seems to be, in some respects, very racist. I can't say he is, because like I say, I don't know his heart, but he seems that way. And it, by the way, there's, uh, people get mixed up with uh, what is the difference between racism and, and ethnicity or, you know, but anyway, I don't want to get into that. That's another, that's another story. But anyway, so I think we've got a problem here with Trump. I don't think he represents the spirit uh, of the American dream and what America is all about and what our forefathers fought for and what the Constitution of the United States really stands for. I don't think he, he understands that. And uh, so, uh, and I don't think he's going to be elected. I don't, uh, you know, I, uh, <laughs> anything can happen, Aaron. Anything can happen, but I really don't feel that uh, he has a, a chance of being elected. I think the American people will overwhelmingly uh, elect uh, Hillary Clinton. You know, it's uh, even though she has some problems and a lot of people don't trust her at this point, uh, but I think she will become our first uh, American uh, female president. Well, I've been waiting for this for a long time. <laughs> I think we all... We need a woman up there in the White House. Uh, yeah, I think we do as well. Um, as a person who has been in the ministry and written about various topics, when you see the news, how do you view it? Uh, you mean the news about the world in general or the news about Christianity? Both. Well, in terms of the world, you know, we, we look at, it looks like the, 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 the sky is falling. I mean, everything is really, really bad uh, in terms of what we see, the explosions of violence across the planet. We have terrorism. We've got wars going on, uh, mass killings, uh, suicide bombers, all kinds of things like this. And it, it, it's kind of discouraging, but you have to remember that the world, uh, when you look back on the historical record, the world has always been this way. It just, it appears that it's worse now uh, for two reasons. Number one, 
because we have a lot more coverage on on television and uh, social media and all kinds of things, uh, the internet and all this. So uh, so it seems like it's worse than it's ever been. But really, we've had horrific uh, times like this in the past. I mean, all kinds of wars, destruction, problems. So communication, that's one thing that makes it appear worse. The second thing that makes it appear worse is that we have weapons now that are so destructive that we didn't have in the past. And so one person can can go in with an AK-47 and just blow everybody away before he is stopped. So it appears that it's really worse, but but it isn't. And uh, but we do have a problem because we have nuclear weapons uh, scattered around the planet now. And if somebody does something stupid, we could really trigger something horrendous. So from that perspective, yeah, things are not <laughs> not quite as good as they should be. I don't know. They should outlaw nuclear weapons, period. I don't care in what country, including the United States. There's no reason to have this kind of weapon on the planet. All we can do is destroy ourselves completely. I mean, once that gets started, it would be a disaster of the greatest magnitude. So I don't know why we don't outlaw that. We outlaw, you know, chemical warfare because we think it's awful. <laughs> well, we, <laughs> we need to get rid of those, those bombs, too, as well, nuclear weapons. Uh, now, as far as Christianity is concerned, uh, well, I tell you, I, I'm very hopeful for Christianity. I see a lot of good things. I, I think uh, a lot of the traditional Christianity is sort of uh, transforming itself. There's a metamorphosis going on here, I think, that eventually will uh, put it more in line with the, what scholars now know and believe about Christianity. It won't eliminate it. Heavens, we don't want to do that because uh, there's there's so many good things about Christianity that, you know, we want to keep. But uh, we want to get it in line with reality because it serves no purpose. Uh, it's inevitably, it becomes destructive if it's not in tune with what we now know and what is real. That's true of any discipline, any science any way of thinking. It doesn't matter whether it is science or religion or philosophy. What we're trying to do is get the, the closest approximation of the truth. Not that we all ever have the exact truth. Science doesn't say that either, but we're always moving towards the better approximation of the truth. And that always makes us or puts us in a better position to deal with our lives and reality and uh, to move forward, not only as individuals, but collectively as a species. Wow, I'm really raving and ranting here. <laughs> <laughs> when you see the what's happening in the, the Muslim world or the Arabic world, what do you feel and think? Well, that's a real tragedy because I think that a few radical Islamist uh, terrorists have hijacked uh, the religion of Islam. They really haven't, but it appears that they have because Islam, the religion itself, and the Muslims are getting blamed you know, the entire religion and all these people are being blamed for the actions of uh, a few radicals. And and I, I shouldn't say, when I say few, I don't mean that there are few in number, because there's probably tens of thousands of these people. But remember that we have uh, 1.7 billion, that's 1,700,000,000 Muslims on the planet. Now, how many of those are out doing, trying to kill and destroy and, and, and are radical and are terrorists? very small. I mean, a percentage must be less than 1% for sure. And uh, and yet uh, they they give the impression that the, all this is about Islam and the Muslims are, are horrible, they're all terrorists, they, they're, you know, and, and that's a shame. 
I tell you, that would be like that would be like because uh, we have skinheads and we have uh, white supremacist groups in the United States uh, that all uh, are, are very prejudicial and uh, they're they're anti-immigrant and they're anti-black, they're anti-Jewish, they're anti-everything, and. Uh, but but there are very few of them. If we said that because they distort the Bible, they go by certain verses in the Bible which are misleading. They they use the, their the Christian faith as a backdrop for their actions. And if the world looked at them and said, "Well, that represents Christianity," that would be so unfair. Christians wouldn't abide by this. We wouldn't call it Christian terrorism. The Ku Klux Klan in its day was very grounded in in the cross and and in, in the scriptures, and they thought that they were doing the right thing. But we wouldn't say Christian uh, terrorism because we wouldn't associate, we wouldn't want that name associated, Christianity, with this little small group of, uh, of evildoers. And yet, that's what we're doing to Islam. We have this, these radicals out here, and then we attach the name of Islam. That's why President Obama doesn't want to attach the word Islam to the terrorist groups, uh, because it's not fair to the religion. But anyway, so there we go. Do you believe in mystics? In mystics? Yeah, like um, uh, Esther, Meister Esthert. Um, Eckhart, yeah. Um, let me think here how I would answer that. Do I believe? Well, I believe that, you know, they were real, and I believe that there is a form of what we call mysticism in religion. And a mystic is a person, really, that dedicates, uh, and traditionally it's been men, although that's uh, somewhat different, too, now. But mystics... Uh, traditionally commit themselves spiritually in a way that no one else does. I mean, they they are uh, 24-7, they are literally in meditation, they're on their knees, they're always constantly trying to reach the other side. Most of us don't have that kind of commitment or dedication. Uh, so there are people we call mystics who are very much committed and historically have had a great influence on Christianity. So yeah, I, I believe... I'll I tell you what, Aaron, I don't believe that all we have is the natural order. I don't believe that everything's wrapped up within the natural order. I, I believe that there is a supernatural element. You know, I, I don't see how anybody, for example, could be an atheist, because an atheist is someone who says there's no possibility of something outside of the natural order. And I don't see how you come to that conclusion, because there's no proof that you can, I mean, <laughs> you can't prove that, that there is or you can't prove there isn't. So I, anyway, my belief is that there's something beyond what we know and understand and what we call reality. There's something outside of that. And so I never closed the door on spiritualism. I never closed the door on the intervention of something outside of ourselves that might come into our lives. Even if I don't experience that personally, uh, I can't say that other people don't. And uh, there have been times in my life when I actually felt that I had experienced that. But a mystic would be in search of that all of the time. But, you know, to have that experience, even Mother Teresa, for example, who's just been proclaimed a saint by the Pope and the Catholic Church, she, in her diary, uh, as you probably know, she, you know, put it down in words that this mystical experience, this connection that she had with with God at the beginning of her ministry went away, that she was basically, conduct, basically conducting her ministry, Aaron, without uh, any of that good old-fashioned religious feeling and inspiration that people feel when they 
feel the spirit of God coming upon them, you know. Uh, she didn't have that. And yet she was willing, and this is the real meaning of love, I think, and this is the real message, I think, of the New Testament, is that you love or you act lovingly towards others regardless of how you feel. That's what real love is about, and that's what Mother Teresa was about. She didn't have this comforting spiritual kind of support that she started out with. There was no feeling. She didn't have that feeling, but but nevertheless, she knew what love required, and she did her ministry uh, in that fashion. So that's what I think is uh, really important in, in terms of uh, mysticism or the lack of it. Do you meditate yourself? I do not meditate, no. Now, meditation, well, there, there depends on what you mean by meditation. Meditation in the Eastern religions, for example, is, is, a, is a tremendous discipline. I mean, it's something you have to work at. It's something you have to develop. It doesn't come easy. Uh, I know that there are people who have practiced meditation in the Eastern world, and some here in the West, who have had tremendous uh, experiences in terms of reaching uh, their inner self and what they consider to be uh, truth, uh, meditative revelations of truth that, that they receive. But no, I, I don't have the discipline uh, to, <laughs> to sit and meditate. I've tried it a couple of times. I just, my mind is always working. It's always running. I just can't shut it down. And you have to neutralize your mind in some way, and they have techniques for this, but I can't do it. So uh, I don't meditate, no. If you could define the, the word meditation, what is your, like, what calms you, what brings you to that place of peace? Yeah, it, this is a, a very difficult question. I, I will try to answer it as honestly as I can. For some reason or other, I have a, a tremendous, almost unbelievable connection with the natural order, with, with animals, for example. There's something about the created order that, that sings to me, that, that, that harmonizes with the very center of my spirit, my soul. I don't know what it is. And, and most of the time, when, when I'm, even when I look out my, uh, my glass uh, patio doors here and I look out and I've got pigeons and quail and all kinds of uh, blackbirds and, <laughs> and uh, they're just, and doves. And they're all out there, and I can look at them, and I feel spiritually in tune. I feel like I've lifted up into another world. And uh, so there are times like that when I feel that I'm in touch with something beyond myself. And it's not just animals. Sometimes uh, it can be just a sunset or a flower or just watching a bee sail by, you know. I mean, it's just, uh, or looking at the ocean or things like that. I mean, it's marvelous. And, and this is one of the ways that, that puts me in a state of conscious uh, awareness that, uh, that I'm not alone, that I'm not by myself, and that there's something else that I don't understand, but it's there. And so I have faith, I believe, that God is there, but I don't interpret God the way most people interpret God. I don't think we know what God is. I don't think we even begin to understand what God is. We have all of these religious structures that try to tell us, uh, but th those are created frameworks that are simply pointing to something outside of something that we don't understand. So but what happens is people fall in love with the structure, whether it's Hinduism or Christianity, where they fall in love with the structure and forget what the structure is pointing to. That, and that's, that, of course, is love and concern and fellowship and brotherhood and 
it's just, uh, but but the things that put me more in tune with those kinds of concepts would be sometimes the written word. It Maybe it's part of a Bible or something that I'm reading in a Bible. Maybe it's a good book that somebody has written. Uh, sometimes I'm lifted up through the written word. Sometimes education inspires me to something greater than myself. So there's all kinds of things that I could say, uh, you know, lead to what I call a meditative state. When you sit down to write, what is your process? <laughs> yeah, well, it's very haphazard. I'm lucky. I never have, you know, I never have that blank page. Like you sit down, you say, oh gosh, what am I going to put down here? It just seems to flow. It just comes out of me. There's a subject I want to write on. I just sit down, I start writing on it and it, it just unfolds. And then when I get tired, I stop. And sometimes I don't go back to that writing. It might be a day, it might be a week, it might be a month. Before I even sit down again to look at what I did and then start from there again and keep going. You know, I, I'm, I'm pretty hit and miss. But eventually, as I, as I get going more and more, I spend a little more time on it. And it, somehow it comes together. I've written four books now. They all seem to be good. So <laughs> I'm hoping. I'm, I'm writing another one right now. So that, that'll be good. Out of the four you've written so far, which is your favorite? <clears throat> oh, gee. <laughs> well... Gosh, that is a tough one. I'll tell you which one is my least favorite. Let's start there. And, th- and that was my first book. It was called Going by the Book, The Past and Present Tragedies of Biblical Authority. Now, it's a good book. There's a lot of great information in there, so I'm not worried about that. But when I wrote it, that was my first book, and I was very careful. I was very technical. Very little of my personality got involved in the actual writing. It's just straightforward, historical, you know, this, that, and the other. It's very uh, uh, academic. And that's not the way, really, that I want to communicate or be in touch with people. I, I want a little bit of myself to come out in the text. So, for example, uh, Mexican Roots, American Soil, that, you're going to find that, I don't know if you've read or not, but if you do read it, you're gonna, it it's hilarious in a lot of ways. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of funny things in there, uh, and it, because it's an autobiography, and there's some very serious things in there, and some very scary things in there. So, and that's a whole different thing. Now, in Jesus Gate and my other book, Created Equal, in those two books, there's a lot of cartoons. I put a lot of cartoons in there. They're original cartoons that I put in the writing to, to give it a little bit of, uh, you know, a, a difference and a, a little bit of fun. And uh, so, so all these books are different, but it, it's... Uh, <laughs> I tell you what, the the book Created Equal, Created Equal is a book uh, that really argues for the equality of animals, all animals, because humans tend to think that we are endowed in in a special such a special way uh, that we are superior to other animals. Well, we are superior intellectually. Uh, certainly, there's no argument there. But does that mean we have? more inherent worth or more valuable than other animals, and we tend to think we are. But if you function under that philosophy, that's a really bad misconception. And my book, Created Equal, tries to show why that is the case, why all animals share equality, regardless of the case in which life is poured into, regardless whether it's a dog or a person or whatever, that life in and itself is sacred. And that intelligence is not the measuring stick by how we determine inherent worth. 
Because if we do that, <laughs> if we do, if we say intelligence is the ultimate criteria by which we we judge a worth or value, well, that means that if you look across the universe and and we have, uh, let's say, we have intelligent life somewhere else. If that intelligent life is more intelligent than we are, and they're probably, you know, knowing what we know now, uh, there probably is intelligent life out there much more intelligent than we are. Well, that would mean, of course, that they could treat us the way we treat lower what we call lower animals. If you're going to base inherent value and worth on intelligence, well, we're, we're in real trouble. Anyway, that, that, that's conjecture, and I, I know that's hypotheses and all this stuff, so it's not provable, but I'm just asking people to... Uh, contemplate that idea, and uh, I, I think uh, all all life forms are valuable, regardless of their abilities, uh, uh, their cognition, their IQ, their intelligence, whatever it is. But Aaron, you would have to read that book to understand the argument, because what I'm telling you here, nobody's going to buy. You'd have to you'd have to be able to sit down and read that book to understand my argument. Otherwise, it would be unfair. You you can't just dismiss this idea. It's a very powerful idea, and I, I would I would uh, argue the point that anyone who's interested should really take a look at that book, Created Equal, because it uh, it makes a very strong argument that I don't think very uh, hardly anybody would be able to argue against. Anyway, go ahead, Aaron. I'm sorry. No, it's perfect. It kind of fits into what you your answer. Um, what is your view on imagination? Imagination. Oh, imagination. I love imagination. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think I could do hardly anything without imagination or, or have gotten any of these books written without imagination or have had the, the wonderful childhood experience that I had growing up in the United States without imagination. You know, when I was growing up, I mean, we were poor. There's no doubt about that. Not as poor as my mother was when she was uh, first came to El Paso when they crossed the border in 1916. I mean, they were dirt poor. And when I mean dirt poor, I mean they, they were living in a shack that, that there wasn't a floor. It was dirt. <laughs> and, I mean, they, in, in one room, and she had about four other siblings and, and, uh, and father and, and mother. And so they were really poor. And if they got an apple for Christmas, wow, that was something. I mean, that was really something. But I grew up. And I, we were poor, but I never was hungry and uh, lived in a good community. And, uh, but in my childhood, I mean, I had tremendous imagination. I didn't have any toys to speak of, although at Christmas time we did get some. That was fun. But I had to use my imagination. I could play for hours uh, just with a couple of little plastic soldiers that I had or something like that. Uh, well, I had, I've had great imagination. I've been able to imagine things I think that most people don't really think about. And that's some of the stuff that appears in my books and some of the stuff I'm writing right now, actually. So imagination is extremely important in a person's life. And I suspect that we all have that to some degree or other. But uh, imagination is, is important, especially if you want to think outside of the box. You, you've got to think outside of the box. Uh, if, that, that's very important. And imagination plays a key role in that. I don't know if that answers your question, Aaron, but that's basically what I'm thinking. It, it does. I that's just want to hear your opinion on imagination because your opinion and my opinion could be completely different. Well, that's true. Well, when we come to opinions, yeah. But here's the problem. I have discovered that the opinions of most people are basically worthless. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes that would include me because... When anybody has an opinion about a subject that they know nothing about, that's, and most of us are in that category. 
So I, when I, if I have an opinion, there's a difference between an opinion and a professional judgment. So if, if, I'm, if I'm talking about something I really don't know anything about, that's an opinion. But if I'm talking about a subject I'm well familiar with, that's a professional judgment. But even then, sometimes you can be wrong. I mean, just because you have a professional judgment doesn't mean it's right. You could still be wrong. And future knowledge, that is, whatever is found in the future, can always uh, change what you think is a truth now can be changed later. Truth doesn't change. Only our perception of it does. Truth is always truth. We used to think, for example, that cigarettes were benign. They couldn't hurt you. Well, that's what we thought was true at one time. But later we discovered that it wasn't true and that cigarettes could really harm you. But see, it was never true that they couldn't harm you. It's just that we thought our perception of what we thought was true wasn't true at all. It was always the only truth there was that it was always true that it was that it was a dangerous thing to be doing, and that's smoking. So truth doesn't change. It's just our perception of it changes. We we always try to get a closer approximation of the truth. I don't even know. Now I forgot now where we even started with. What question were we on? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you next if if um, Jesus or Buddha or Krishna were alive, what do you think they looked like? What would they look like? Yeah, and today. Why they why they would look like me? <laughs> uh, let's see what would they look like wow nobody's ever asked me that question and i can answer truthfully i have no idea i suspect they would look it would, the way they would look would depend on where they were born they would look like the people of their community so i, I think this portrayal for example of jesus as a white man you know with uh, nice blonde hair and blue eyes and all <laughs> Uh, that's pretty silly. Uh, we don't do that so much now, but there was a time when Jesus was portrayed as, as specifically as a white Westerner, you know, and, and that's not who he was, and that's not what he was. He was born a Jew, he lived as a Jew, and he died as a Jew. There was no Christianity at the time of Jesus. Now, Christianity springs forth from his teachings, of course, and the story of the resurrection that surrounds him. Uh, certainly, Christianity came out of that. But uh, Jesus, no, he was, he was a Jew, he lived as a Jew, and he died as a Jew, and I think a lot of people forget that when they're anti-Semitic and they're always uh, against the Jews. I mean, they forget that Jesus was a Jew. But anyway, all right, keep on there, keep on trucking. And looking back, would you change anything that's happened in your life? Ah, looking back. Well, you know, I think we all would be lying if we... <laughs> We said there wasn't something we would want to change. So looking back, yeah, there's. I've made a few mistakes along the way, and if I, you know, if I had to do it over with, I, I would have. But overall, Aaron, I've got to say I have been extremely fortunate. I have made decisions that have been pretty strong, pretty solid, and overall, I would say there's very little I would change. But there are some things I would change. Yeah, I would have. Uh, I would have invested in land for one thing. <laughs> California land a lot earlier, a lot sooner, and I all I have is a little patch out there in the desert somewhere, but uh, which it doesn't amount to much. But I, you know, there are little things like that that I would have done differently. Sure, but overall, no, I feel very content with decisions I've made and the way my life has unfolded. And I've been very fortunate. I've been very fortunate, by the way. That that's one thing that America provides too. It gives opportunities certainly, but you have to have some luck too as well. And uh, I've had, I've certainly had my share of it. So it, it isn't, it, it's 
gosh, this this country, it, what it's afforded me, what it's given me, and uh, it's just amazing. I don't know. I would, of course, if my family hadn't crossed the border in 1916, I probably wouldn't exist because my mother would never have met my father, and I wouldn't be around. <laughs> so, but they're all they're just crossing the border. My family has given me uh, tremendous uh, advantages that I I wouldn't have otherwise. Say now, the English language uh, uh, for immigrants is a bit of a why. <laughs> <laughs> really, the English language is a problem for all Americans. Even if you're born here, Americans have a horrible time with English. <laughs> it's it's really somebody must have been a masochist whoever made this language up. I mean, we always struggle with it. But I can't imagine being an immigrant not knowing English. You know, coming here and not knowing English as an adult. I don't know that. Well, most of them they really have a hard time. When I grew up, I didn't. I all I knew was Spanish, because my mother and my father, that's all they spoke. So when I went to grammar school, uh, you know, when I went to kindergarten, I didn't know any English. And uh, that was tough, um, I guess, because I don't remember too much about it. I do remember uh, Mrs. Childs, that was the teacher's name, (laughs) in kindergarten, she slapped me. And I don't know why she slapped me, but as I look back, I'm thinking, well, you know, I didn't know English, and she probably asked me to do something or told me something, and I didn't know what it was, so she thought I was disobeying her, and she probably just slapped me. So, But I'll tell you what, that's the best thing, not to slap, but the best thing that happened to me was being thrown in to a school where I had to either swim or sink. I mean, that's how I learned English. Uh, this, this assimilation, integration, this is, this is how it happens. Otherwise, I, I would, you know, if I came here as an adult or a teenager, I'd probably have an accent. And I don't have an accent because I learned English as a child. But English is a tough language. There's no doubt about it. And if you don't learn it early, I mean, you, gotta, you, you do have a problem. And uh, I feel sorry. I have students in my classes at Glendale Community College here, and, and they, they don't know it. They're coming from other countries. They don't know English. They're struggling. It, it's really hard. I mean, it's really hard for them. I feel sorry for them. But Is music still in your life today after leaving the band? Yeah, well, no, not not uh, officially or technically or any other way, really. Uh, not professionally, certainly. But I like to sing once in a while. I sing with the radio or I sing in the bathtub or something like that. And I was involved with music for many, many years, even after I got out of it professionally. Because when I was uh, leading youth groups and stuff, we always had music. And we developed certain groups. One of them, for example, called Homestead and Wolf, that was uh, a group that I took. Actually, these young people from my church, I took them down to Hollywood and did a recording session with them. They were so good. And uh, Homestead and Wolf, you can probably pull them up on the Internet, but you can hear some of their music. I mean, they're really, really good. Uh, so I have been involved in music, uh, but in the last, you know, last 10, 15 years, not so much, not so much. But I like it. I still sing and I listen to the radio all the time. Ernie, in looking back, is there one piece of, of gem or knowledge that you could pass on to myself and the listeners? What would it be? Wow. Uh, yeah. Well, here's a couple of them. Here's one. <laughs> the quality of life is predicated on the decisions made prior to the crisis. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's, that's a cool one. Labor- just elaborate a bit more about that, just so the person can understand. Well, the yeah, it means that, you know, you don't want life to become an event. You don't want to react to events. You, you need to look ahead to see what's coming. I'll tell you what, I had the open heart valve surgery 
And uh, because my aortic valve, I I was born with a what is called a bicuspid valve, and so they they get uh, where they wear out is they get calcified. So when I when I turned 60, we had to they had to replace it. So it's open heart surgery. They got to take a valve out and they put a cow valve or a pig valve in there. So I did that, uh, but. If you wait, you know, I could have waited and said, well, I'll wait till this, uh, you know, gets worse, and then I'll wait until I absolutely have to have, because nobody wants to go in for open-heart surgery. But I decided to do it right when I knew I had the problem, because if it becomes an event, that is, if you wait too long, then you don't have the say of where you go. I went all the way to Cleveland Clinic, which is all the way across the United States, because they were the best at, at this kind of surgery. But if I had waited till it became an event, then I, I wouldn't have been able to choose my doctor. I, they would have rushed me off to the hospital here, you know, somewhere. Somebody would have did the operation. I, I had no control over it. So when I say that the quality of life is predicated on the decisions made prior to the crisis, that's what I'm talking about. I act before it became an event, before it became a crisis, so I could control the situation. See, that's one. So that, that's how I explain that quality of life is predicated on the decisions made prior to the crisis. But there's a lot of other things I could say, too. You know, I mean, uh, uh, sometimes uh, the more, oh, here, there, there's a couple of things. Uh, education in and of itself does not make you a spiritual person. I tell my students this. I tell them, listen, you can know everything about how the Bible was transmitted. You can know everything you think you know about religion. You can know the world religion. You can know all of this. That does not necessarily make you a spiritual person, not even a better person. It should make you a better person, but it's not necessary. My mother didn't know any of this. She was a saint. So it's how you live your life. It's, it's the concept of love uh, and how you share that with other people. That's the most important thing. And the fact that you know everything doesn't make it so. So that, uh, you know, uh, you, we've got to be careful there not to assume that knowledge in and of itself is, is the ultimate good and the, and the primary good, because a person without love, who doesn't care, who doesn't share, is a, a person that's missing something, frankly. Where can we find you and your work, Ernie? Oh, okay. Let me see. Uh, it's You can go to uh, my website. It's erniebringus.com. So it's again, it's erniebringus.com. And uh, the way the spelling of my name is easy. It's Ernie is E R N I E. Bringus is B R I N G A S dot com. So you pull that up, it has all my books, it has some of my my records, the recordings. You'll be able to see uh, where I was with Columbia and who who recorded what, and uh, plus all my books are there. So and, and my teaching and so it's all there on that website, erniebringus.com. Excellent, Ernie. I want to say thank you very much for coming to San Siege and sharing your stories, journeys, experience, and knowledge. Well, Aaron, listen, uh, I want to thank you for uh, this invitation and, and for the questions you asked. And they were very insightful, and I, I appreciate uh, <laughs> sharing this time with you. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for spending the time to listen to the show. If you want to learn more, check out sansit.com. That's S-A-N-C-I-T dot com. Join Sansit Group on Facebook and contact us if you have any questions. Until next time, have an awesome day and rock on.